Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to talk with Baxter Holmes of ESPN about the Kobe Bryant farewell tour and the Lakers in general, because I think it's it's one of those stories that is really fascinating, and it really captivated me having covered now two of his farewell games, the one in D.C. and the one in Oakland, Golden State. And the perspective on that, I think, I think is really fascinating because it is a very distinct thing that is happening in the NBA. And Kobe is such a polarizing figure, but the circus, let's call it, of this is something that is hard to convey sometimes with writing. So I wanted to do a podcast on it. We also hit on the Lakers' future, the, the present, you know, how it's going to be recruiting free agents and everything like that. Conversation runs about 55 minutes. I really love talking with Baxter and hope you enjoy it too. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, man. I thought you'd be a great person to talk to about this because I've covered now two of Kobe's final games, and you've gone around the league before this, most notably in Boston. Have you experienced anything even close to this? No, I mean, not to this scale in this day and age. I mean, you know, I've never done a farewell tour like this. And then even then, you know, Kobe, 20 years in the NBA, there's, there's just so much history, and I... It's one of the things that strikes me is that every place that we go, he has a lot of stories, which really kind of just drives home how long he's been in the NBA. But it's also kind of a it's kind of a circus in a lot of ways. There's just so many people after the games crowding the hallways. You know, athletes from other sports, or you know, maybe they're they're in that town, or maybe they're not from that town. They flew in just to see him play there, um, but everybody's wanting to get autographs, wanting to get pictures. Just his. From his walk from the locker room, from the post-game press conference to the bus, it, it really does take forever. And one thing that I've, I've realized with this, you talked about the idea of, you know, stories in every city, is that he's distinct among great NBA players in that his basically entire basketball legacy, or like his whole fame, pretty much, is from 
when he's been an NBA player. You know, he had a little bit at the very end of high school, but nothing like LeBron. So his fame is all from this thing that's about to end. Right. And, you know, not only that, but, I mean, let's not forget that when he was a high school player, you know, there was no Twitter. I mean, it wasn't really the highlight era. None of, I mean, the social media, every, everything. Like, his fame as a high school player was nothing compared to what it was for guys now. I was talking to somebody recently, longtime Lakers fan, and he was relating to me how Kobe is really the last guy, the last superstar who people – I mean, I don't want to say that they didn't see coming, but, I mean, no one really expected this. And he was recounting when the Lakers acquired him that summer, and uh, particularly on the day when they traded Wadi Divac to get him. And he said, what we were most excited about, uh, and he's speaking generally for a lot of Lakers fans, and I won't, I won't say that he's speaking for every Lakers fan, but I'm sure that this sentiment is shared amongst others. But he said, you know, we'd only seen like a few highlights of the kid. And, you know, it was of him dunking and, we thought, oh, maybe he, you know, he could be a really good Eddie Jones or something like that. But he's like, all of our excitement was like, oh, they're trading Vlade. That means they're clearing cap room to get Shaq. We might get Shaq this summer. Like, we might get Shaq. He could be the next great Lakers big man. Oh, and then there's this other kid, this 17-year-old. We haven't really seen any highlights of him. But, you know, he seems to dunk well, so maybe that'll be cool. But, hey, it's like Shaq. So then now Kobe becomes, obviously becomes, you know, one of the greatest players in NBA history. But... Just the technology, then the exposure, the highlights, all that. I mean, it just it isn't the same um, as it is today. I remember reading about LeBron when he was in eighth grade, and, you know, and we track these players now when they're you know seemingly younger than that. But Kobe, it wasn't that way. So he's really unique in a lot of ways. And even in the process, I mean, you wrote piece a great piece on his workout with the Celtics and things like that. From what I remember, of course, I wasn't in the same position that I am now. That wasn't as common as now, where I remember you think of guys like Andre Drummond in maybe more the negative way, and a couple different guys, Damian Lillard, and more than a few others in the positive way, where those kind of workout reps get more spread out. But back in, back then, that was more of a secret until later on. Right, yeah. You didn't really necessarily know, you know every little detail about you know, the workouts. And one of the things, again, that's so important about Kobe's workout then, and I'll, just, I'll talk about the Celtics one, uh, because I talked to their director of uh, scouting, was he, you know, the year before Kevin Garnett comes out, and he's a really good player, but there hadn't been many prep to pro guys. You know, there, you'd have to go back decades to guys like Moses Malone and Daryl Dawkins, and there just wasn't a really big sample size of these guys. And even then, the guys who had done it well were big guys. They weren't guards. And so the scout was relaying to me, he said it's so hard to – uh, try to project not only what someone would do as a college player, you know, high school to college player, but, but then projecting them two levels ahead, you know. And, and he said this was a huge challenge with Kobe. And he recalled watching one of his high school games, and, you know, Kobe dominated. And he, he said, but how do you know that that guy is going to be able to do it in, in, the, in the pros? And to that point, during the window of prep to pro guys, for every one or two that seemed to make it, it seemed like there was 10 or 15 that were complete busts. You know, like it was just, it's hard to really project at that level, and especially for a guard. But so Kobe was, he was unique in that, in that way. And, and I do respect the fact of the challenge of trying to scout a high school guard at that time when it was just virtually unheard of. 
Yeah, and also the the competition, and there are so many other things that are different that the process now, even in terms of AAU and everything else like that, it's it's easier to evaluate players now than it was then, even without the technology of spreading things out. Just for a scout, their job has gotten a lot easier. Oh, yeah, without question. I mean, the, the technology of things has certainly changed so much, and it seems like there's there are few guys, it seems like, that really fly under the radar now or, more to the point, really kind of come out of nowhere. Anybody who's good, and, and anywhere around the world, for that matter, it seems like somebody has had their eye on them, and there's been plenty of articles written or, you know, YouTube highlights available for, you know, going on years up to the point when if it's high school or AAU or then college or pro. So, you know, people kind of know what they're getting. It's it's really rare for anybody to... to, to uh, come out of nowhere, as I said. I mean, I, I do remember when I was working at the LA Times, a lot of people were talking about Kawhi Leonard and how at the particular time when he was coming out, there was such a, an abundance of really good uh, high school players in California, particularly in Southern California, and it was hard for everybody to get noticed and get attention. And so he ends up at San Diego State. Um, obviously, he did really well there. Now he's an amazing player for the Spurs. But at that particular time, it was just it was hard to get noticed because there were so many great players in Southern or in California, particularly in Southern California. Well, then fast forward a little bit. I remember during my time there at the LA Times, something notable happened in that for the first time in a quarter century, maybe even longer, there were no McDonald's All Americans in the entire state. And so it was it was, it was such a flip flop from before where a guy like maybe Kawhi, maybe he doesn't get as much attention just because there's so many good players to where, you know, however many, just it seemed like a couple of years later, you know, anybody could get attention because there just wasn't that many good players at all. It was kind of an anomaly. I know I'm going off on a tangent, but anyway. No, I think that's a really good point. And you think about other guys, like I was a UCLA alum, and you think about the players from L.A. who ended up out of state, like James Harden, where like he just wasn't recruited heavily enough by UCLA, but he was still a high-end guy. And the, the analog, I don't think it's an analog, but I think it's kind of the exception that proves how unique Kobe is in this way, is Stephen Curry. So Curry gets kind of a little bit of the out-of-nowhere cred because he went to a really small school, still the son of an NBA player, still a, a recruit and all that, and he's a small guy, and he was still so much more of a known commodity when he came into the league than Kobe. Right, yeah. I mean, he had that dominant um, NCAA Finals run. I remember when they played my alma mater, Oklahoma, which had I, like, Griffin, like Griffin at the time, and Seven Curry completely lit them up. Um, I'm trying to remember if that was during the regular season or during the tournament, but I just remember all throughout the season, you know, everybody knew Steph Curry. You know, and you knew how an elite shooter he was. You knew who his father was, all that stuff. Um, I understand, obviously, concerns. He was, you know, pretty thin. And I'm trying to remember, did he have ankle problems then, or was that more early on in his, in his NBA career? That was early in his pro career from what I remember. I don't think of that in his scouting report, though it could just be far enough ago that I don't remember it. Yeah, yeah, but but I mean, nonetheless, the, it, the case remains. You know, Stephen Curry. You know, everybody knew like he was. The, this guy was an elite shooter, an elite scorer. Now, obviously, you know, and, and that may not have been the case, and which is why he ended up at Davidson. But certainly, that was pretty evident to a lot of people by the time he left there. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted I wanted to do with this, just because I've experienced it, but I think you're probably better. You're definitely better at conveying it right now. Is just what it's like, particularly in one of these farewell cities, for the kind of the whole circus around Kobe Bryant and how that's different from from the other experiences you've had in media. 
Sure. So it starts typically before, well, it, it really starts when the team gets to whatever hotel they're staying in. And, uh, you know, there's, there's always been fans, I'm sure, that have been there for to get autographs or photos or whatever kind of things like that. But it's just such a bigger mob now, you know, and it continues. I've heard even Lakers players have been telling me about it. You know, they feel kind of like rock stars because every hotel they're going to, there's so many more people there waiting just to get a photo, to get an autograph, to get anything. And then, you know, when they get to the games, there's so many of them crowding around the court for warm-ups to see Kobe shoot. Uh, everybody's crowding, you know, coming down from wherever they're sitting. They're, they, they crowd down to the really, to get as close as they can to the court for everything. They're crowding around the tunnel, leaning over the railings, anything like that to get as close as they can. During the games, uh, there's all kinds of Kobe chants and there's tons of signs and there's tons of Kobe jerseys, number eights and number 24s. Um, and then after the games, uh, it's the same kind of thing when he's leaving the court. The, there's more chance. There's people leaning over the railings. It's the moment kind of lasts, lasts quite a while on the court. Some arenas, it's a little bit more intense. Philadelphia, his final game there was, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's going to be a game like that, you know, maybe just his final game, but that was really something, that was something to see. Uh, his final game in Boston was, was really cool to be at. But yeah, it's just, it's just, it's, there's just so many people there to see him. And uh, particularly in these games where it's his final stop there, yeah, I, I, I probably haven't even quite processed it yet because of, you know, I'm in the middle of the season and, you know, the games come quick and you're going from city to city, but it's quite an experience. The one that I would add to that, because I've now covered two of his farewell games, the one in D.C. and the one in the one in Oakland, is was the moment that happened after the Warriors game. So, you know, the the Lakers lost. It was closer than some people thought, but, you know, they still lost by, I think it was like 15 or so. And there was this kind of horde around Byron Scott, more than any, even even more than the visiting teams, let's say, before the conference finals last year. So it was kind of like that level of mob around just Byron Scott. We didn't even really know at that time where Kobe was going to be. But then the moment that crystallized it for me was immediately after Byron left, you know, he left his interview time, the PR staff for the Lakers said, Kobe is going to be, he'll be interviewed out here, be out there, which is exceedingly rare. And then the next thing they said was, oh, and now the locker room is open, so you can go in and ask questions of everybody that isn't Kobe. And even though there was an implicit understanding that it might be a while only like two people went into the locker room. And so it was this entirely different thing. Like I've said before that one of the crazier experiences I had was the first time I covered the LeBron heat was Chris Bosh in particular was basically left alone because LeBron had a mob. Wade had a, had a teeny mob and then everybody else was basically silent. I walked over and I've talked with Battier and Bosh for long times because they're just sitting there by themselves and with Kobe, it was it wasn't even that they were in the locker room; they were just standing outside. Yeah, that you know that you bring up a great point. After most of his games, in fact, in fact, after almost all of them this year, it's been rare that he's been in front of his locker. I can only think of a few occasions, even at home, where that's the, that's the case. You know, they're, they're bringing him into some kind of post game thing, where they're bringing him outside into some kind of where there's more space to accommodate. The, the large media crowd that is there for him. And in, in some cases, he's speaking before the games. I know he didn't go to state. You know, he did all before his New York games. But, you know, he takes a while after games, um, typically because of the amount of therapy 
that he's getting. I mean, I mean, physical therapy, uh, if it's icing, if it's massage, if it's, you know, they're using different devices on them, which I've written about. Um, it's just, it's a lengthy process for, you know, a 37 year old body with a, you know, 20 years in the league and an incredible amount of mileage and injury history and all that. So it does take a while after the games. And there's often this moment, as you pointed out, where people, the, the PR staff will come out and say, okay, you know, Kobe's going to be a while. So you can go in and talk to the other players or you, if you want. The locker room's open now. But people, given that choice, as you, as you know, many people don't surrender their spot. If they have like a prime location within that media scrum where they can get, you know, their recorder, their microphone, or their camera like up close to Kobe, they're not going to give that up if it means going and talking to, you know, Lou Williams or Nick Young or, you know, Larry Nance or Daniel Russell or Julius Ringel or, or whatnot. Like, People know, okay, Kobe's a show. Kobe is the reason why all these fans came here, why ticket prices are high, why people are tuning in. I'm not giving up this spot, you know, particularly their media. That's probably the, the what, the sound bite or the audio or the, the video clip or whatever it is that they were sent there for anyways. That's why some of these media, these scrums are so huge. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's the Kobe show start to finish this year for the Lakers. And the more I've thought about it over the last couple of weeks, especially after the Oracle game, the more I think that even if the Lakers were better, it would still be the same dynamic. Yeah, I would. You're probably right. It's hard for me to imagine them, uh, and maybe I'm cynical in this way, but it's hard for me to imagine them as being better just because, like, in the time I've covered them, they've been really bad. But uh, let's say they were like a middle of the road Western Conference team, and let's say Kobe was healthy and playing and whatnot. I do think that the focus would still heavily be on him just because he's the star and, you know, his, his, the star power that he carries is sometimes hard to quantify. But I do think if they, if they were winning, there might be, and, and other players were contributing more, like let's say D'Angelo Russell or Julius Randle or any of these guys, I think that they would get some, some shine as well, so to speak, or some attention as well. Um, but given the fact that it's Kobe's farewell and he, these are his last stops, Everything is kind of amplified on him. Like he is just, he is going to get, you know, the scrum is going to be huge around him and other players are going to be in the locker room and just see reporters waiting around Kobe's locker and no one's going over to talk to them because the reporters just, they can't, if they surrender their spot or, you know, whatever location they have, you know, that means they might be at the back of this really huge media thing and are not going to be able to hear anything or see anything. And, you know, and thus, you know, they'll get well, yelled at by their editors or producers or whoever. How is it at Staples? Because I've only I haven't gone down this year to cover any games. Is it? Is, I'm hoping it's substantially different. There's still a pretty good amount of media there. For, I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, in LA, there's still quite a bit of media there. I would. It's probably not as aggressive um, in terms of size, or you know, they're having to move the post game things into the press conference room as because people know, like, okay, this isn't his last game. I'll get to see him another game. Yeah, he doesn't have that last game feel. When he did announce his retirement, or that he was like officially retiring, you know, the media that day was there were there was a ton of people there, and I'm sure as we get closer to the end, particularly for that final game, I was actually thinking that today, like for his final game, I can't even imagine what that's going to be like. I just I, I just picture a huge circus um, in terms of the size of media and the fans and just the whole experience, but. It certainly has been much calm in terms of just the media alone. It's been a lot calmer than you know road games where it's his final game. Uh, there's no question about it. But there's still there's still a fair amount of media there, just you know for any average old Lakers game. 
Yeah, and I think part of the resonance for Kobe is that in a lot of ways he signifies the end of an era. If you want to even call it the the Jerry Buss era, just because he's the last really high-profile guy who you think of from those teams. And, of course, Kobe is far bigger than the Lakers in terms of his reach, but I think that's part of, from my read of it, that's part of what makes him so galvanizing to Lakers fans beyond that he played his whole career for the same team and things like that is that he represents something that, and as kind of the last of that group. Yeah, he does. So I think I've written this before that he kind of, he's, he not only symbolizes the end of an era in terms of like the buzzes, as you point out, but also the last, their last connection to greatness because, you know, some people could mention Meta World Peace in that regard, but it's just not the same. I mean, you know, because he won the title alongside Kobe, but Kobe was there for five championships, you know, their most recent championship in 2010. And then you see the dip in the franchise and, and, and where it's at now, this, these, these depths of rebuilding, the bottom of the West, you know, they're, counting ping pong balls and hoping that uh, everything turns out okay when the lottery rolls around. But Kobe represents kind of this last link on the court to this greatness and, and parades and champagne and June and all that stuff. And when he goes, I think the reality of rebuilding really truly will set in. I think now the focus is so much on celebrating him and the farewell tour and these are Kobe's final games in Boston or in Philadelphia or, you know, wherever the case may be. Like, so much of the focus is on him. I think when he goes, then the reality of, like, where the Lakers are as an organization becomes very just front and center. And I think that's one thing that's different from what I've seen about the Lakers and their fans than a lot of other fan bases, both in terms of, if you want to call it talk radio and just the perception of the team, is that, for the most part, other than, let's say, like two weeks in July when they struck out on a lot of different guys, the overall structural issues with this team and where they're going long term just kind of fall by the wayside. You know, I, I don't think that fans are unaware of it. It's just that it's not at the forefront. Like, let's say if this same team quality and all that was ha- like, let's say you somehow swapped the Lakers and the Celtics. I feel like the way that the team is thought about and discussed would be very different than it is than it is right now for whatever reason. Yeah, that's a good point. And I um given that I covered have covered these two franchises, I think about them a little bit in terms of like, you know, how the situation would differ if it was in Boston or how it would differ in LA if you were to take the same kind of scenario. And the situation is in LA and maybe it's because of Hollywood, or maybe it's just because of the amount of stars that the Lakers have had during their time there, but it's just such a star-driven um, organization, and it's just so much about star power. And you know, you see that you see that the games. It seems like when it's on the court, um, or you see it when it's near the court. But the amount of celebrities that are there in Boston, it always kind of felt. And not that I was there for terribly long, and certainly they had you know some of the biggest names in NBA history. But it always felt like it wasn't necessarily about the star so much as it was just about the organization. Um, and the franchise, and and that's just one of the biggest difference between these two teams. And so, yeah, it's it it is striking. I think it's a it's a perfect storm or perfect mix of things that makes the season kind of what it is for the Lakers, with all the focus on on Kobe and whatnot. And you're and you're right. You, I don't think fans are unaware of you know the various things going on with rebuilding, such as like you know they know. Uh, that their pick this summer is top three protected, and if it falls fourth or lower, it goes to the 76ers. And they know kind of what the cap situation is, and 
you know, what free agents are out there and, you know, the trade deadline is next month and all these, you know, they're, they're completely aware of that, but just the bulk of the attention of the headlines of everything is going to Cody right now and really has since the start of the season and it'll continue until his final game. And I think that another difference, I, I was very critical of a series of decisions that they made recently, including how much money they're paying Kobe right now, because I just thought it was it made it too hard to do the next step. But the conversations that I've had with people around around there and people who've been fans of the teams for a long time is that I think they're kind of okay with that, as, as much as, you know, it would probably be nice if they were better. But what that really does is it puts the onus on the front office that the next stage is going to have to be smooth. Basically, it's kind of like they got this two-year grace period because of the Kobe extension and because, you know, he retired and all that. But that basically they've been looking past it. They've deliberately put a blind spot kind of in their fandom. But as soon as Kobe's gone, then that blind spot is is cleaned up and it'll be it'll just be a new, a new thing to think about. I love the term that you use just now, grace period. I think that's a fabulous way to describe what this is because – why, and it kind of makes me think of something that Mitch Kupchak, the Lakers GM, told me recently um, regarding this season and what it's really about. And he said, this isn't a surprise to anybody, that this season is all about Kobe. And, you know, if if some people thought, well, the emphasis is on developing players or whatnot, like they'd love to do that. They'd love to, that to be the sole focus, particularly at the end of a lost season, and just say, we're going to get tons of minutes to these guys. But you know, it's just not the case. And the season is about Kobe, and there are minutes that he's going to get. They would probably go to younger players right now, but it's just not the case. So, um, But he mentioned that he thinks that there's a silver lining to that in that the, maybe the younger players can make some mistakes and they wouldn't get as much attention or as much publicity because the focus is just so much on Kobe the entire year. So, yeah, even potentially a little grace period there. I think he may, I think he may be right, frankly. But yeah, all in all, a total grace period for them these last couple of years. And when they emerge from it, when Kobe is gone, uh, this is not to say that there wasn't pressure on them already. It wasn't, it's not to say that their fan base is ignoring the record right now and where this team is at. The body, you know, the worst record in franchise history was a year ago and they're on pace to do worse this year. Um, you know, everybody is completely aware of that, but they're just, they're kind of putting any, bla- you know, outlash or backlash or whatever you want to call it on hold until Kobe's gone. But, it, you know, when that happens, I mean, it, it turns the heat up on the organization, the front office to make some moves and to do well to right this ship as soon as possible. And that ties in with something that's been a little bit surprising to me as somebody who lived in L.A. when the Clippers were not at their worst because their worst is a long time thing. But when the Lakers, you know, I was there with Derek Fisher shot and kind of the later the early kind of start. I think I was there when the Pau Gasol trade happened was I I kind of had this pet theory in my head of, you know, like how if the Clippers ever got good, because at that point that was a distant dream, much less what ended up happening. You know, like would the Lakers fans convert to be Clippers fans? And what I realized is, you know. There's a group of them that are, you know, that are, they'll be Lakers fans forever. And that's wonderful. That's, that's a good thing. But I also wonder, and I'm not sure, I'm not, I'm not asking this from a position of knowledge or as a trap or anything. Is like, I wonder if there's any group of them that are kind of holding on for Kobe. And then at that point, they'll make a more, a more neutral evaluation of where they want to not only devote their fandom, but where they want to kind of put their interest. Oh boy, that's an interesting question. When Kobe's gone... Because there are, I'm trying to think of who wrote about this. I believe it was for ESPN. 
But it was about the idea of like a civil war of fans in L.A. And it was essentially saying there are Kobe fans and there are Lakers fans. And just because you're a fan of one doesn't necessarily mean you're a fan of the other. Like there, and, I'm, and this is true. There are people who love, love, love Kobe Bryant, but they're not necessarily Lakers fans and vice versa. Uh, and this kind of goes, I guess, into what people sometimes say that Kobe's a polarizing figure in some ways. But nonetheless, his diehards are diehards, and, I, and they may not necessarily love the Lakers. So what happens when Kobe leaves? Do, do you know, are the are Lakers fans, you know, what, or what happens to those diehards? Do they latch on the Lakers still? Do they, are they more interested in the Clippers, who are a pretty good team right now? You know, they're considered one of the contenders in the West for sure. Do they latch on to the Golden State Warriors? You know, another another team that's not – you know, incredibly far, it's still in the state, and they're awesome. Um, or do they latch on to somebody else? It's a, you know, there's more. You can watch any team in the league right now. Uh, you know, with like league pass technology, any you can view any player from anywhere, any team from anywhere. You know, anybody can be fans of anybody, and have as much access as anybody else almost. Um, you know, aside from being able to physically go to the game. So uh, that's a great question. I do wonder what happens when Kobe leaves because he's such a huge, huge, huge part of the Lakers. We just saw. The other day, the jersey sales that came out, he was number three, I believe. And then I think the Lakers were number four in team merchandise. So when Kobe goes, and I'm sure like even, I'm sure even media will feel this with the amount of clicks, for instance. Um, I know, you know, I've been told, and this is not, you know, breaking news, but that he drives a ton of traffic. And so I'll be interested to see what happens to Lakers traffic. When he leaves, and will, and just the same, like what, what does that mean for the Lakers games themselves? Yeah, and it also, like, I'm somebody who grew up in Northern California, spent a little bit of time down there, and as somebody who grew up, you know, following the Warrior, grew up following basketball in general, my operating thesis has always been that it will work out for the Lakers because my entire life, and even long before that, it always has, and my brain still says that's going to happen, whether it be in 2016 or 2017, that they will get, you know, maybe they don't get the next Shaq because I don't know if the next Shaq is really in the market. They're going to do that. And that might be the other window here is, you know, I, I'm not expecting this to happen, but if they, let's say if in August of 2017, they don't have a clear cut all-star, then that's another maybe evaluation period that would affect the way that fans think about this. Yeah. You bring up a great point. There's always an expectation that the Lakers will figure it out, right? That they that they will just land a franchise-altering star through some means. They will there'll be some kind of trade during the off season, or maybe there's a trade on draft day. You know, much as the same in the situation that it was for Kobe, or some disgruntled star will, you know, who's not happy where he is, will force his way to the Lakers in a trade. And before the season. I uh, wrote a, a four-part series kind of examining what, according to 25 people around the league, the Lakers needed to do to get back to contention status. And there was a lot of talk amongst people like, yeah, you know, the Lakers have, have always been really good, and, you know, they'll probably figure it out. But one of the things that they mentioned consistently, and you know far more about the subject than I do, is that the landscape of the NBA has changed so much from the days when Jerry Buss ran the team and it seemed like the Lakers could kind of pick and choose whoever they wanted. The the collective bargaining agreement is different. There's more incentive for players to stay where they're at. The, the way the luxury tax is now, the, you know, as I said, technology earlier. So if big markets were able to say, hey, come here, we'll make you a star, a player could say, well, you know, look at Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. 
they're stars in Oklahoma City. I can be a star anywhere. I can build my brand anywhere. I might as well build my brand when I'm with a winning team. So in some ways, I do think it puts the onus on the Lakers to uh, make smart organizational decisions and try to produce a really and have a clear, uh, more to the point, have a very clear and and direct kind of plan for how to how to create a winning basketball product that they can present to potential free agents and anybody else. Uh, because I and I've written about this, the idea of them just kind of selling LA or selling their brand or selling the prestige of, of, of all of it, of the lifestyle of living in Los Angeles and being a part of the Lakers. I don't know that that holds as much weight as it used to, but as I, I mean, as you pointed out, I'm still inclined to believe that things will somehow some way work out for them just because history has shown that to always be the case. Yeah. I, I think that it's definitely gotten tighter, let's say. So the way I'd put it probably right now, and of course it depends player to player and their history with the city and everything like that is that, it used to be if the Lakers could get even close that they would have the advantage, you know, so as a total package. So if they, you know, maybe the team was a little bit worse or whatever it was, or maybe the money was a little bit less, which it almost never was back in the day, then you can do that. I think that now you need to be closer to make it work, which I think is one of the most interesting things about the Kevin Durant sweepstakes whenever that happens, whether it's 2016 or 2017. So then under that logic, what the Lakers need to work on the most is making sure that it, that that it can be close. So the way you want to maybe parallel that is what kind of what Houston did when they were recruiting Dwight is like, okay, you're going to have a better team around you. It's going to be more fun and all that kind of thing. And LeBron was such a different thing that I don't think we can even really yeah. calibrate with him. And I will believe forever that the Lakers, even with maybe ownership that doesn't have the rep that, that Jerry had, will still do that for a very basic reason, which is that players do not need a sales pitch to spend their winters in Los Angeles. A lot of guys <laughs> have their have their history there. Their LA also one of the big benefits for the Lakers that they haven't had to use recently is that there is such a talent base that is from there. A certain a certain twenty seven free unrestricted free agent is from around there, and who who just who just had a practice court in his honor that's not too far from Staples. You know, well <laughs> I'd say it's not too far, except it's probably like an hour and a half driving most of the time. But that's a separate thing. Mm. And so you have that. I mean, even Paul George. There are a lot of other guys too, but you have to get it close because with let's let's use Durant just because people have thought about his free agency more. I've written about it more. Is He's not going to go to a situation where the chances that they're a title contender, he has to take on faith. That's too that's too hard a sales pitch. But if you can get to the point where, say, you're going to be the one who puts us over the top, I think the players will believe that. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big proponent of the idea of, like, you're the missing piece that we need. And if that's your sales pitch, I think you're in good shape. But if, if it's clear that, you, the, that whatever team you're going to – is, is pretty far off, and that particularly, let's say for Durant, that he's going to be taking a steep, you know, a steep decline in in, uh, in the level of competition that his team, you know, will have if they're just not going to be a contender or not even close. That I think is a really hard sell, regardless of where the team is. But if, if it's close, I think the Lakers having, you know, I think some of their their hometown advantages um, do put them over the top. I will say this, and this goes back to what we're saying about. Being close before the year began, uh, I had so many people from around the league say that the Lakers, their biggest focus this year, 
should be in developing some of their young promising guys, really getting a ton of minutes and helping them blossom so that other players around the league and certainly, you know, Durant fits in that category could see the Lakers. They could see these young promising players kind of growing and see the potential of what they could become. Guys like Julius Randle and D'Angelo Russell and Jordan Clarkson. And, you know, even at times Larry Nances look pretty good. Um, but they could see these guys and say, you know what? There, there's, there's, the promise of something good there. And if I go there with these young kids developing, like we could be something. So everybody emphasized me, like they got to focus on that because if they have a year where it's just kind of a lost season and it's just only about celebrating Kobe, they're going to set themselves back another year. And it just, you know, there, it's just how, how many more years does it keep going? Which always raised this season, this delicate, difficult balance of celebrating Kobe but developing these younger players that so the Lakers look competitive so they improve their chances and just look more attractive to people around the league and he thinks that the young players have shown enough you know the times when they've looked good that it's it's you add it all up and it's an, it's enough of a sample size to meet the approval of players around the league we're going to find out in free agency granted this year is kind of a or this coming summer is kind of a um, you know, it's a Kevin or nothing type situation, probably for a lot of Lakers fans. Other guys are, you know, Hal, Al Horford and Mike Conley and so forth. But, you know, it, it, that whole situation with the kids and making them attractive so that the Lakers, so that the situation is close. You know, as you, as you pointed out, I mean, I think if it's close, the Lakers are in good shape. But I think getting close from where they're at now is, is, is a challenge. It is a challenge, and I think that the best thing that they have going for them is the idea that they can bring in two guys. That's probably not as relevant this year just because there aren't really two. I mean, I guess theoretically Durant and, let's say, Horford. But that is relevant in 2017. But then you have to deal with the issue of patience, which is basically if you wait until then, which means that you can't put a ton of money on your long-term books, you know, you can't, and, and there aren't going to be many players this year considering teams are going to be spending money like nobody can believe. Like it's I, I have trouble conveying to people how insane this summer is going to be in terms of spending. But <laughs> if they can if they can hold off and do one more year, they make it a lot more pressure for themselves. But if their goal, and I think it should be considering where they play and their legacy, is more on the championship or bust side as opposed to the perennial playoff team side, that might be the bet. But that is so gutsy. You know, the idea of basically, you know, punting on another year, especially with the, well, we'll see what happens with the draft pick, which is another huge factor in this. If they send the pick this year, it makes it a lot easier to tolerate that because you'll be keeping your own pick. But I'm just fascinated to see if they strike out, how this ownership group and front office reacts to that. Oh, I mean, it it is going to be fascinating you know, everybody knows that Jim Buss is on a ticking clock. I believe this is year two, and so it wouldn't be this summer, but next summer. Like, if they strike out this summer and the team doesn't reach, I believe the threshold is the Western Conference Finals, you know, by, what, next year's playoffs, that he's gone. You know, or so says the timeline that, that he uh, has set himself and that his sister, uh, Jeannie, has, has very adamantly been for. And to, to your point um, about, you know, being able to bring in two. I had a lot of people talk about that, but they stressed uh, the same point that you brought up, that particularly for the summer of 2017. And they said the idea is if your goal or your idea is like, 
in two years we're going to get guys. They said that's not much of a plan at all. And one of the things that they emphasized was, you know, if you're the Lakers, you might have more luck at this time in trying to get guys who have L.A. ties because then you can also pitch them on the idea of coming home and whatnot. And some of them, you know, the, the guy, the name that came up from a lot of people is someone that the Lakers should go after. I mean, you know, DeRozan was certainly one, but the other guy was Westbrook. But the thing that virtually everybody who talked to me said was that if your plan is, okay, we're going to get Russell Westbrook in two years, they said that's a very risky, gutsy kind of plan because, A, you don't, you know, so much can happen in that time. You know, particularly to a player who has kind of an injury history, plays a very violently athletic style of basketball as it is, and we, you just don't know what you're going to get. So much can, you know, with change with his body, with the league, everything, the whole dynamic. So if your plan is two years out, we're going to try to get Russell Westbrook. I think that's, in, in, I think it's almost impossible to sell to a fan base. Even if it's like we're going after that, you know, a huge, huge star, and that's always been good in LA, and that's what the Lakers have always been about. I think, especially as other teams, you know, Milwaukee got, you know, a star this summer, and San Antonio, a small market team, you know, got reeled in the, the catch of the year, and LaMarcus Aldridge, or the catch of the offseason. So, there's a ton of pressure on the Lakers. There's more than ever. It all starts, as you point out, with this lottery. If they lose their draft pick, I, I, I don't. There aren't really words, maybe beyond like catastrophic, to describe the gravity of that happening. It would just be, again, catastrophic. So everything starts there. Um, it could go really well for them, and they maybe bounce up to the number one pick and are able to get, you know, a guy like Ben Simmons or something like that. And then the whole outlook for them becomes a lot rosier. But that also means that every single game for the rest of the season, especially with the standing team kind of close, becomes ever more important for them to lose games. So, yeah, it's a really fascinating situation that they're in. Everybody, you know, they're the glamour franchise of the NBA. Everybody's paying super close attention. There's a million fascinating dynamics that are going to play out. Uh, but until, you know, for, for the time being, everything is still about Kobe Bryant. Yeah. And the other risky play that I think is, is seriously discussed, and I got a little bit of a, a little bit of talking about it with Chris Ball, is the idea that they could trade for somebody. But again, that's the same type of risk because you're still having to sell somebody else, you know, because you can't trade. You're not going to be able to trade for your entire core. It's impossible. And mm-hmm. so you're going to have to you basically use that player to recruit other players, but you're also making your you're not making your team weaker necessarily because of course if you give up a bunch of young guys for Demarcus Cousins or Chris Paul that might make your team better on the aggregate because those guys are quite good. But yeah. that's risky in the sense that the why the Lakers have built so much through free agency is because then you can pile it on top. You can pile it on top of your depth, and that can work really well. And that is the other way that this can change drastically. Whether or not they keep their pick is whether they do something like that. And I don't have a read yet on whether they would be willing to do that and also who the market would be. I mean, there was the discussions with, with Cousins last summer, and I think those would come back. But again, Sacramento is is in a very different situation. And the fact of the matter is that game-changing players, particularly game-changing players under the age of, let's say, like 20, 25, 26, just don't hit the trade market that often. You're right. You're absolutely right. And, uh, you know, the Cousins thing, I spoke to somebody about this last night just because Cousins was in town and, you know, that floated out there, but the Lakers elected to keep, uh, their young guys. And, 
it, the thing that I think is going to be kind of interesting to me is the Lakers, it's common for teams to rebuild, right? You know, you get your young guys, um, you develop them, they're your core, and in the modern NBA, under the current CBA, that's a pretty financially good way to go about it. You know, you build from within. Look at Oklahoma City. So you had, you know, promising players built from within, so on and so forth. But that's never really been the Lakers' way. Like, they, they have always seemed to acquire stars. They've had some, they've had, they've drafted some of their own. You know, Magic Johnson was certainly that way. And, you know, they made a draft day deal for Kobe. But there's always been this, them reeling guys in one way or another. And if they really elect to go with the, we are going to grow this thing from within and it'll take time, but that's the way we're going to do it. And, you know, that's not to say they won't go after other guys, but if they just really hunker down and decide to do that, I'm just curious how the fan base, particularly in Los Angeles, will react to that. Because that's just, that seems like just such a stark turnaround from what this organization has always done. Yeah, it doesn't really seem like trust the process would fly too well in LA. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, just considering, I mean, consider it like this. The Lakers' longest playoff route is two consecutive seasons. That blows my mind. The Clippers, on the other hand, their shortest is three seasons. The Lakers just, they've always been good. But if they just, if they take the long view approach and like, you know, we're just going to develop these kids and, you know, we really like them. We like Russell and Clarkson and Randall, but not, and these are cornerstones of our future and we're not going to move them to try to get somebody else and, you know, unless like that, that unbelievable guy, it's, unless it's an absolute deal where we can't turn down, but we're just going to, we're going to grow this thing from within organically. I'm just, <laughs> I'm wondering how that would sell to fans who have seen quite the opposite through their entire fandom of this team. Yeah, and from what I remember, at least James Worthy, but possibly Magic too, were draft. They were drafted by the Lakers, but they weren't drafted with the Lakers' own pick. There was for, like kind of the the bouncing ball of good fortune went to the Lakers in a very different way. Then I think it was the Worthy pick was from Ted Stippian and the Cavs. I don't remember exactly with Magic. It was before my time, before yours too. But uh, but yeah. it's, it's it's amazing how that's kind of goes along with the idea that things always work out with the Lakers. I mean, they were able to get Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in a trade when he was one of, one of the best players in the league. Yeah. This, this, it, it's a, I don't know what you call it. Like the, the Lakers magic Lakers mystique. I don't know what it is, but they have always one way or another. And even in these moments, that's why their, their shortest, uh, their longest playoffs, you know, drive us two years. Like even when they go to these little walls, which, any most organizations would kill for something like that, but even when they go through them, like boom, landmark shifting trade, they are back on top. You know, good times are here again. Parade, champagne, the whole nine. So, I, people, there does feel here like there's this waiting for this to happen. Like it's just you know, hey, it's gonna it's gonna turn around, man. It always has. Like just like clockwork, like. Like sunshine in California, you know, the sun's going to shine on the Lakers again and everything will be good. And maybe that will happen on, on lottery night, right? Maybe the, the, the ping pong balls bounce a certain way. They, they go up to number one and all is good again. Ben Simmons is here and they have this franchise changing guy and, you know, and the stardom is back and there's excitement again. But until then, there's just kind of this anxious waiting, like, how much longer is this going to take? And, you know, what if we're not? as sexy as we were. And we can't just pull things out, you know, like pull a rabbit out of the hat like we always seem to be used to. And so it's just it's this awkward uncertainty, unknowing kind of idea right now that's floating around. And 
you know, lottery night, as I said, is going to be a big night for that. And if this summer, this regardless of what happens on lottery night, if this next summer unfolds as the previous three have, if the Lakers strike out again, and you know, if they're just going for Kevin, you know, or bust, um, that's you know, that's that's tough, right? I get it, especially you know, for Kevin, if he wants to go to a really a top-notch competitive team right now, the Lakers just aren't there, and that's that. But you know, if, if it if it comes to pass for a fourth for a fourth straight offseason, they strike out in free agency. It's going to be uncomfortable. I'll put it like that. And one of the kind of the central figures in deciding where the Lakers are going here is D'Angelo Russell. He's their most recent high-profile pick. What are you thinking about his, him right now and where he'll be, let's say, a couple of years from now? He has shown some really promising moments on the court. Um, you know, his most promising was up in Sacramento when he had 27 and was great in the second half and helping him get back into a blowout game before he sprained his ankle. But, you know, he's he's certainly shown... Uh, at times, and, and several times throughout the year, I'd say, when he has this kind of superstarish quality, right? When he could, and which is what they said when they drafted him. Like, this, this guy we think could be a superstar. And he certainly has looked that way. His, his, his court, his court vision and, uh, ability to just, you know, zip the ball through these really super tight windows and the perfect spots is a natural talent that not too many guys in this league have. Um, and his, you know, he, he's also shown a penchant for being able to score the ball really well. But it's also been weird at times this year. We're seeing how Byron will play him. You know, he'll, he'll, it seems like at times he'll give him a lot of freedom. And then at times, you know, D'Angelo's spending all his time on the bench. And so that whole dynamic all year long, frankly, has been hard for me to get a read on because it's just, you don't know. The glimpses come here and there, but then you see him on the bench or, you know, maybe his role in the offense is reduced or, you know, certainly there's growing pains when he's going up against the other dominant point guards in the Western Conference, and virtually every team has one. Um, and, you know, and that, that's true of a lot of the NBA. But I will say this. Like, there has been enough there this season to make me believe that the kid truly could be special. But I also understand that he's, there's a leash on him, so to speak. So those glimpses aren't as common as a lot of fans are probably like. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And what I like about him a lot are I think he has good instincts and I think he has a really high skill level for somebody who's as young as he is. And I'm somebody who is all, who always gives super young guys who are running an offense a lot of leeway because they struggle early even if they're good. That's just the way it is. And I think that I, I'm a little bit worried just defensively, but at the same point, defense at whether he ends up defending ones or twos moving forward it just isn't as important as a center. You know, it's not like if you have a center out there who who can't protect the rim, that's obviously a much bigger structural issue. So if he can run an offense, if he can initiate pick and roll, and I love I love his passing and transition, that could be enough. I mean, I don't that doesn't necessarily make him a star anywhere else but L.A., but it it definitely helps. And I I think that sure it would have been nice if they had somebody who popped the way that Carl Anthony Towns or Porzingis has. And, you know, that is what it, that is kind of something distinct. But as you said, I think that he's he's given enough for a player to be intrigued, but not enough for the, somebody to be sold. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And you know, defense, that's going to come in time. That's usually what every, you know, uh, outside it seems of a guy like a Justice, Justice Winslow. But it seems like everything, every rookie kind of struggles with that a little bit. But, yeah, there's definitely been enough there, particularly, you know, him running the pick and roll. I think when they get a more consistent pick-and-roll kind of partner. He's been wonderful at 
making the right reads and perfect passes off of that. So yeah, in the right situation and with some more time for how young he is, he's there's definitely a lot there to be excited about. I'll I'll leave you on this uh, on the Kobe farewell tour, excluding the final game at Staples, which of course is its own thing. Is there any game that hasn't happened yet that you kind of have circled on your mental calendar of like, oh, that'll be interesting either in in whatever whatever you define as interesting, just in terms of the places you haven't gone yet? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Most of the big ones are out of the way. You know, Charlotte, the organization that drafted him, Boston, you know, two finals battles, Lakers, Celtics, uh, Philly, his homecoming there. Uh, you know, Utah was kind of a neat place just because uh, postseason battles between the Jazz and then Sacramento was cool because of the same reason, postseason battles between the Lakers and the Kings, especially some, some great ones. Um, so most of the big ones are out of the way. I think his final game in San Antonio will be cool. Uh, you know, Lakers, Spurs go back a long ways. I think his final game in Chicago, given his adoration and, and really obsession with Michael Jordan, uh, is going to be something special. Uh, he won his first championship, um, uh, or, or the finals battle he had against Indy. So, you know, his final game in Indianapolis will be cool. But I don't know that anything that is left on the schedule outside of his final game will be as momentous as anything that has already occurred. There will, there will be some cool ones, but I, you know, all the heavy hitters are off the schedule, so to speak. Yeah, I'm also really intrigued to see. I think it's just going to be a, a a giant just Kobe love fest in the last game at quote unquote the Clippers because it's really late in the season and there's a possibility for some people that that might be I don't know how the ticket prices are going to be but that might be one of the cheaper tickets on the last kind of the end of the farewell tour because they play them in April. Yeah, that's a good point. You know that game will be. I mean, those final as we get closer to the very very end, the games are going to start to become much more of a zoo because I think there'll be desperation from people like, I, you know, let's say they put it off at some point in the year. Uh, like, Oh, you know, I'll see him later in the year, but later in the year. Well, when later in the year comes, all these people are like, Oh crap, I got to go. You know, I don't know. You know, what, I, I don't know if I can get a ticket to this or whatever. So there's going to be much more of a scramble. Ticket prices are already high. I think they're going to go, they're going to skyrocket even more. And then obviously the last game, I mean, I just, <laughs> I don't, I don't even know what that's going to be. There probably aren't even words to describe what that atmosphere is going to be like. And it's going to be hilarious because odds are it's not going to matter in terms of much to either team. But if it does, that's going to make it just a very different zoo because people like me will be watching the game for, well, I mean, of course, I'm, Kobe's last game matters to me. But like that, if, if it, you know, let's say it affects the ping pong balls and they're playing Utah, so it could affect the playoffs in terms of Utah, probably not in terms of the Lakers. But the other one I, I talked about a little bit with the Clippers is, I, I don't understand exactly why they did this, but the Lakers and Clippers play a home-and-home back-to-back, which happened to be Kobe's last two games at Staples Center before the final game. And I feel like that's just yeah. going to be a madhouse. Oh, yeah, you're you're probably right. Um, and, I, again, that's one of those scheduling quirks. There was another one earlier in the season. I know that's an old tangent, but they had one four games and five-night stretch this year, right? Two games were on the West Coast, two were on the East Coast with a day in between. I just, I remember looking at that in the schedule. They played Portland, LA on a back-to-back and they traveled to Philly. Then they played Philly and DC on a back-to-back. And I remember thinking, you know, I, and I felt this after that, the, the game in DC where I saw you and I think Kobe went for 31. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was like, he tied his season high. I think he had 31 in another game, but anyways, I remember feeling it after the, that day and just, 
I, you know, the way I feel, I wonder how the players even feel at this point. But yeah, the Clippers, uh, that, that whole situation, um, with the way the schedule worked out on those pair of games is interesting. But yeah, I mean, that, that final month, uh, and I also think, you know, the, the, his final road game, you know, when they play in Oklahoma City, there have been some pretty good playoff battles with the Thunder. I remember being in Oklahoma City for the previous game when he wasn't able to play, and that was a great environment. Uh, Oklahoma City is already a great environment. It's one of the loudest arenas. In the NBA, um, there's tons of Lakers fans there. Seems like there's, yeah, tons of Lakers fans everywhere. But uh, yeah, that should be a really cool one as well. Yeah, I think that's one I'm looking forward to. Also because of the relationship that the OKC, especially the perimeter guys, have with Kobe. You know, that's somebody who they have connections with. Russ with LA and Kobe and everything else, and Durant because they're, you know, in a, in many ways they're peers, even though they're substantially different in age. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for taking time. Great to talk to you. Yeah, man. Wonderful chatting as always, Danny. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks again to Baxter for taking the time. You can read him at ESPN, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Baxter Holmes, B-A-X-T-E-R-H-O-L-M-E-S. Great follow and very insightful on the Lakers and, of course, his, his history with the Celtics and everywhere else. And I think he's a really talented writer. Uh, if you haven't read his piece in particular, the one that stood out to me was the one on Kobe's workout with the Celtics. We talked about it a little bit in the podcast. I, I I love that. I thought it was very interesting in the scope of where his career has gone that there were people who really did see it then. And you can read what he talks about in the rest of this trip because this is going to be something why I want to do this podcast now when there's a little less than two, well, three months left in, in Kobe's season and NBA career is that this is something that has been ridiculous so far. And ridiculous, I mean, in a good way. And it's going to continue. It's it's not something that's like that. So what I wanted to do this now is so that listeners can get a sense of what this is like every day, not only for Kobe and the media, but for the players on the Lakers and everything else. And I think it's it's a very kind of compelling moment in this sport where different things happen all the time. But I think this is something that is truly special and we should appreciate it while it happens because it just doesn't occur very often that a player like Kobe, especially with his legacy and history with almost every team, something Baxter and I talked about a little bit, really happens. And so I wanted to have that out there so that when you watch the Lakers the rest of the year, beyond just being depressed at how bad their defense is, that you can appreciate what it is. And and I, I've actually, having now covered those, especially after the Wizards game, it really did make me appreciate this in a very different way. And I talked about this a little bit when I had Audie Joseph of the Sporting News on, is that my opinion of Kobe Bryant has changed the most of any player from when I started covering this from before I started covering the sport to now. And I don't know exactly why that is. I think it also marked the transition from when Kobe got a lot more comfortable and loose speaking to the media. But he's a guy who is incredibly well spoken and who speaks with a combination that is exceedingly rare, which is that he's very funny and he's funny in in a, in a different way than than most athletes than most people and that he's incredibly aware of his legacy and it kind of reminds me a little bit of a politician in like if you for those of you who listen like particularly the last state of the union that most presidents give they do a lot thinking about okay this is i want to try to phrase how people are going to talk about me and kobe's been doing that for five plus years it's just one of the things that he does and i'm not saying that in a positive way or a negative way i just think it's fascinating and the the way that he has become so comfortable in his own skin and 
spending so much time in the Los Angeles fishbowl has really given him this ability to navigate a what are very complicated choppy waters with a deafness that is truly rare is something that I've enjoyed a lot and I appreciate it for what it is and it's been fun to do that I have no idea what he's going to do next but it would be amazing if he could somehow use that in a way because very few individuals in sports or broad, more broadly in pop culture have really done that and of course spectacular basketball player unquestioned hall of famer and all that and so we can't focus as much on that right now just because the flashes are fewer and further between now but i i, I just find the it, the entire farewell tour to be a really interesting insightful piece into not only kobe and all that but the nature of fandom and the nature in some ways of being a media member i mean the story that i told when we were recording about the oracle media crowd not going into the locker room when they said you know the kobe was going to be out there was just it showed me how this dynamic is and it really crystallized it in a different way and the fan enthusiasm has of course been there but that that i think is a little bit different i think we all expected that so the media part is what stood out to me because it was more surprising and that's just what i gravitate towards so that's enough of me rambling about Kobe, though I'm sure I'm going to do it a lot more in the next couple of weeks. And I hope for Lakers fans that I, I, I'm I'm somebody who is critical of the Lakers because I think they can do great things. And there was a conversation on Twitter, uh, I think it was in April of last year, where somebody asked Bob Lugaris about what team other than Oklahoma City that didn't make the playoffs did he think was m most likely to or would win a title next. And... What I ended up responding to that, and I think he might have said the same thing, I don't remember, was the Lakers. And the reason for that we talked about a little bit is that things always do work out for them. They have a lot of these structural advantages. And, you know, I, I like a lot of the young pieces they have. They hadn't drafted Russell at that time, which makes it a lot easier of an argument to make at that point. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll see where it goes. Um, as always, feedback is greatly appreciated. You can reach out to me, best ways on Twitter, Danny LaRue. D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can also email me, NBA at gmail.com. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can. I'm trying to get better at it. I make no promises. But I really do appreciate it. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe. Please download every episode because that really does help us. I, I don't exactly know yet still how I'm going to monetize this even after I did that long little ranty thing after, I think it was the podcast with Audie Joseph. And, but I'm, you know, working on it and figuring all that out and we'll see where it goes. And also, you know, if, if it's something that you like, tell people that you tell people that you think would enjoy it, whether that be people, you know, in, in real life or whether that be people that, you know, on Twitter or social media, whatever. I mean, that is a nice way to do it. Maybe they'll like it. Maybe they won't. You can't make any promises, but it word of mouth is a great way just in general to draw people's interest with things like this, because they're getting it from somebody, especially if it's, let's say, on Twitter, somebody that they've chosen to follow. So I think that's something that is, is interesting. You know, I try to recommend things all the time, whether it be to people who are my, my writing friends, my social friends, my college friends, whoever. And that's just something that I do. And so I encourage everybody to do the same with the things that you enjoy. Hopefully that includes this. You've listened to me talk for what looks like about six minutes and 45 seconds already. So hopefully you do. I apologize for that. But Thanks so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything! Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.